Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. I am honored to have two guests on the podcast today, Dr. G. Thomas Budd and Dr. Justin Johnson, both of the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Budd is an oncologist and Dr. Johnson is an immunologist, and they have just launched a very early study on a vaccine that aims to prevent triple negative breast cancer. They join us today to talk about this very exciting research. Dr. Budd and Dr. Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Now, before we kind of get into the real specifics of your particular study, I'm wondering if you, Dr. Johnson, since you're the immunologist, I'll start with you and then I'll ask Dr. Bud to chime in. Could you tell us sort of how would a cancer vaccine work? Like what's the what's the mechanism behind this? Okay. So first of all, I'm not clinical. I'm in the research side of this vaccine. So Dr. Bud can answer the more clinical questions, but this is a good technical question. So our vaccine would work in a very similar manner to the vaccines that you're used to. The ones that you get as an infant, um, the HPV vaccine as a teenager, some of the vaccines we get as older adults, such as the shingles vaccine and pneumococcus. Basically, a vaccine is training the immune system to recognize these pathogens or invaders in our body and, and target them and eliminate them. And our cancer vaccine is designed along similar lines so that you are training your immune system to attack cancer cells as they emerge, ideally. So the technology is very similar. The difference is with the traditional vaccine, the vaccine is usually based on or contains all or part of the actual pathogen, uh, which is non-self uh, in the immunologist lingo. And we're, we're trying to create a vaccine that recognizes self, which is cells of your own body, but they are in a sense altered self because they are no longer behaving as a normal cell. And so the trick is to figure out how we target these cells, how we tell the immune system that these cells are no longer normal and are now dangerous. Um, and we have, for this vaccine, targeted a protein called alpha-lactalbumin, which is a normal lactation protein that is a component of milk. Okay. I, I want to interrupt you for one second. So if I'm understanding you correctly, because cancer cells start out as normal cells and then they change or mutate and they become cancerous, that's why the immune system has a problem attacking it because the immune system is still seeing these cells as, hey, this is part of my body. I should not attack it. Is that, am I yeah, understanding that correctly? That's exactly right. It's, it's okay. very nuanced that these cells are partly self and partly acting like they're an enemy and, and that they're non-self and that they're dangerous. And tumor cells can even employ tricks to shut the immune system down using the control me mechanisms that are naturally part of your the way that your immune system operates. Um, so there's a lot of um, 
tricks that the tumor cells use, um, but there's a lot of tricks that scientists and clinicians can use. Uh, and, and Dr. Bud can talk more about the clinical side of things. Okay, thank you. And and just to sort of follow up with that to make sure everybody understands. So that's probably the biggest reason why it's been so difficult to create a cancer vaccine. I know I've seen very early studies for breast cancer vaccines, you know, prostate cancer. I know it would be amazing to come up with one, but it sounds like that's a big reason why, because of this, this, these cells start out as part of your body. They're not a foreign virus that you inhale in like COVID or something. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and so with, with a virus or bacteria, for example, it's very easy to target that because that organism doesn't have much in common with your own cells and it's very easily recognized as dangerous. But the idea of making a cancer vaccine isn't new, it's just very difficult. The research goes back about 100 years when early researchers would take out a tumor, grind it up and inject it into the patient. The problem is you're injecting self into self, largely, and we needed to find a really good target to target our vaccine against. The ideal target would be something that the cancer cell makes that the normal cells do not. And that has been the holy grail for 100 years, and it may not be a realistic goal. So what Dr. Tui, who um, spearheaded this research and, and sadly, unfortunately, passed away last uh, month, he came up with the idea of what he called the retired self or retired protein hypothesis, whereby he recognized that later in life, uh, it's normal for the, the body to shut down production of proteins that it used to make, that used to be important. For example, the pigment in hair that turns, you know, goes away and our hair turns gray as we age. Many of these proteins that are so-called retired are uh, involved in reproduction. And that makes sense because as we reach the age of menopause, we're no longer having children, we don't need these proteins. So a lot of the proteins that the ovary makes and the breast makes get shut down or retired. And Dr. Tui also recognized that cancerous cells often turn on the expression of these proteins that are shut down. So he came up with this vision of targeting these proteins that we don't make anymore in normal cells, but cancer cells do. And alpha-lactalbumin, which is at the core of our breast cancer vaccine, is one of these proteins. Because once a woman is no longer having children and lactating, that protein shouldn't be made. Uh, but oftentimes, breast cancer cells do make it, and in particular, triple-negative breast cancer, which is you know, one of the most aggressive and has the fewest treatment options, is very prone to make that protein. So it's an excellent target for breast cancer, especially triple negative. Okay, thank you very much for explaining that. Dr. Bud, we'll switch over to you to talk a little bit about the clinical side of this vaccine research. Well, based on Dr. Tui's work in conjunction with uh, Dr. Johnson, it was clear that in these animal models that this vaccine could, to some extent, treat triple negative breast cancer in these mice, but more importantly and more potently, it could prevent them from developing breast cancer. So ultimately, that's what we want to do is be able to give it to women at risk for developing breast cancer. 
As a first step, we're looking at, at women who have a history of triple negative breast cancer that was early enough that it could be treated surgically. Also, they usually get chemotherapy, radiation, sometimes immunotherapy. And when they've completed all the standard treatments, but are still at risk to have the cancer come back, at that point, we're giving this vaccination uh, in a series of three injections under the skin, separated every two weeks, looking at the side effects and the immune response. And really what we're trying to do now is figure out what dose we ought to use going forward. And that dose will be based on side effects, of course, we wanna have acceptable side effects, but also on the immune response. So we may not have to give the highest dose. We just wanna give the dose that gives us the immune response we're looking for and has acceptable side effects. So that's what we're trying to determine now. Okay, that sounds extremely interesting and exciting. I believe if I read everything correctly, you have two studies going on right now, a phase 1A and a phase 1B, and I know Phase one studies are usually pretty small, like 10 to 20 people. So Dr. Budd, if you could explain perhaps the differences between the two studies and what you hope each is, or what the aim of each study is. Sure. Both of them are phase one trials, which means they're early studies, first studies in, in human beings, have the goal of determining the dose we should use going forward, look at the side effects, look at the immune response in this case. They differ, A from B, in terms of the population of people who are entering into them. So the 1A trial is for this group of patients who have a history of triple negative breast cancer but are at risk for recurrence. Uh, so we're, that's the 1A group. And that's where we started first, just to get an idea of the kind of do range of doses we should look at. The phase 1B group is a different group of patients. Or, uh, these are women, basically, who are at risk to develop triple negative breast cancer because of variant genes that they have, such as BRCA1. That's the most common one that we think about that puts women at risk for triple negative breast cancer. And as many in your audience know, um, some women who have this genetic variant know they're at increased risk and elect to undergo preventive or prophylactic mastectomy on both sides uh, to take away the breast tissue and reduce the risk of developing breast cancer. And the, this is the group of women that we're targeting in the phase 1B study. So these women will undergo the preventive um, mastectomy, but beforehand we'll give them the vaccine and we're going to look at the effects on the immune system and also look uh, for any side effects that would be in the breast tissue after, after it's resected. One concern we have is that there could be some areas where there is milk production in these uh, breasts, even though these are women who are not uh, making milk. And so just to be on the safe side, we wanna look at those breasts very carefully to look for any evidence of that and inflammation that could be a potential side effect from this vaccine. So we're trying to be very careful about looking for any anticipated side effects. Uh, but of course, we're also looking at any immune response uh, that we can produce against alpha-lactalbumin and cult tumors that could be there. Okay, I do wanna ask about the protein, the alpha-lactalbumin, if I'm saying that correctly. Do we know why it seems to be found in triple negative breast cancers, say more so than uh, hormone receptive positive breast cancer, and, and I'll ask that to either whichever one of you would like to respond first. Well, I could say I don't think we know. 
<laughs> okay, that's, that's fine. We, we do have a speculation. We just haven't uh, researched it directly. But Dr. Tui had a suspicion that the the hormones, such as progesterone, actually repress when it's not needed. And when tumor cells emerge, these control mechanisms break down or are bypassed. That's how we end up with triple negative breast cancer. And so that opens up the door for alpha-lactobumin expression. So it was speculative based on what's out in the literature, but we never researched it directly. I would say there's some interesting uh, epidemiologic kind of linkage in between breastfeeding and triple negative breast cancer. So breastfeeding seems to reduce the risk of developing triple negative breast cancer. So there's that intriguing link. Now, how that link is formed, we can speculate that it has something to do with the development of the breast and involution or of the recession of the, you know, the milk producing part of the breast after you stop making milk. So there are a lot of hints, but a lot of work left to do to try to figure this out. Okay. I'm, I'm curious too, what happens if a woman never had children or had children, but didn't breastfeed? Does that affect the level of this alpha lactoalbumin? I mean, I know we don't know if that would directly affect breast cancer risk, but it sounds like there could be some linkages in there somewhere. Well, one of the concerns that we had before launching this trial was we had uh, tested this vaccine in a mouse model. It was very effective. It was 100% effective in prevention and, and also very effective in treatment. But one of the critiques we got was, you know, when we go into the human populations, what, what's going to happen if women have had children and lactated or if they haven't? Is that going to affect how the breast cancer vaccine works? So this is a great question. And we addressed that question in our mouse model with mice that either had lactated or had it. And we found that immunologically and the effect on the tumors wasn't altered at all, whether the mice had a history of lactation or not. So it's a question that remains to be answered in the human population. And you know our trial may help answer that question, but as far as we know, it shouldn't make a difference either way. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. So that sort of leads me to another question. I know this is a very early study and you can't answer all the questions or have all the different types of people that you might like in the study, but are you looking at all uh, by say a woman's age? So are you looking at somebody who maybe is done having children, but hasn't gone through menopause yet versus somebody who has gone through menopause or is everyone in the study postmenopausal? Well, we have pre and postmenopausal women on, but all women are cautioned that they should not become pregnant and uh, breastfeed afterwards. And uh, many of these women, because they've had chemotherapy, for instance, sometimes are pushed into menopause by chemotherapy. But we are just cautioning women that we do not want them to uh, breastfeed after this. Okay. And this is probably a question further down the road, but I'm wondering if this vaccine is successful and say I'm a younger woman, I'm 25, I 
don't know whether I want to have children yet or not, but I do know I have a genetic mutation, say a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. So I know I'm at higher risk of breast cancer. Is is this vaccine a possibility for a younger person like that potentially, or is it really for somebody who is finished having children is say, you know, they're heading toward menopause? Well, it's for, for women who, who are finished having children. And that's what we would say at the present time. But in the, in the meantime, they can do, and many women do this now uh, because they're waiting to have children, is they uh, are screened. So MRI screening is done, and hopefully we'll have better screening methods going forward. Okay. And then I do want to ask a little bit about side effects. I've, I've read some of the side effects, say, with the um, immunotherapies, where, you know, perhaps you have thyroid issues after that. You have other sorts of autoimmune disorders that come up because of the immunotherapy. It sounds like the vaccine works a little differently. So I'm wondering if the side effects you're anticipating or have seen, say, in the mouse models, are they similar to that or are they different? Do you have any ideas what the side effects might be? So preclinically in the mouse models, this vaccine was tolerated very well. We did extensive toxicology testing on these mice. The main issue that we saw in these mice was that there was irritation at the sites of injection. Um, to get a good immune response, we're injecting an emulsion under the skin. So that's kind of like mayonnaise. It's, it's kind of creamy and it's meant so to- It's very thick. Yes, exactly. Uh, and it's meant to be that way. It's meant to, to, to remain under the skin in a small blister for a couple of weeks. And that activates the immune response because that's one of the clues the, the immune uh, system gets that there's something there that shouldn't be. So this is necessary. And unfortunately, there's a side effect of causing some irritation there uh, that eventually resolves on its own in our mouse models. So it wasn't considerably serious, but it was something that we noted. Um, and I believe that Dr. Bud can confirm that the human trials are sort of mirroring what we saw in the mice. Yes, so we are seeing essentially what Dr. Johnson told us about. You get there's a lump, it's itchy, uh, it turns red, sometimes tender. In, and we've raised the doses, uh, and we've kind of if you go too high on the dose, it takes longer to resolve, and sometimes it even weeps, and we consider that unacceptable. So we're looking at lower doses than the doses that cause that. So we're exploring all the dose ranges. We haven't seen a lot of fever, that kind of thing. Um, but I would point out this is different than some of the immune therapies you're talking about here. We're trying to focus the immune system on this one protein. In these other checkpoint inhibitors, so-called, such as the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors, they're kind of taking off the brakes. And your, your immune system has brakes because your immune system is active all the time. It's responding to... Uh, infections and other and inflammation, that sort of thing. It has ways to turn itself off. And essentially what we're doing is turning it off when it attacks the cancer, but we're turning it off in other situations as well. So you can get these immune side effects, which are really autoimmune side effects. And so we're trying to produce autoimmunity, but autoimmunity that's just very focused on these alpha-lactalbumin producing cancer cells. So far, we've not seen any of those kind of side effects on the thyroid or, or um, you know, colitis, mm -hmm. the colon, that sort of thing. 
Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, I do want to ask Dr. Bud, where does a woman get the injections? Is it in the arm? Because of the group of patients that we've been treating, many of them in the phase 1A, many of them have undergone bilateral mastectomy. They elect to do that, many or else just one side, but they have some uh, procedure done to under their arms, to the lymph nodes there, removing some of the a few or many lymph nodes under the arms. So we wanted to avoid the arms for that reason. So we went to the legs and then a third injection on the stomach, on the belly. So, and, but it was really for that practical reason. Gotcha. Because I'm assuming that's for lymphedema reasons, needle yeah, sticks, those kind of things. we didn't want to cause lymphedema in women who'd had uh, surgery uh, under their arms. Okay. And I'm curious, I'm not sure which uh, one of you, Dr. Bud or Dr. Jonathan, should answer. Are either of these trials still recruiting? Say if there's someone listening who thinks she might be a good candidate, is that possible or are they closed and you're pretty much just now going through the trial and then analyzing? Well, they're both uh, recruiting, actually. Okay. Okay. So because the phase 1A, we are expanding, so we've kind of figured out the ceiling on the dose and we're still expanding or continuing to study uh, below that ceiling. Uh, So we are accruing patients. I will say we have a long waiting list, but because you, it's just women are very interested in this approach. So, uh, you know, I don't want to promise or mislead any of your listeners to think it's likely that they'll get the treatment, but we're certainly open to, you know, putting people on a list. Uh, This 1B trial we've just opened. So yes, we are looking for participants. I should point out though, because of that, we're looking at this breast tissue all of the surgery has to be done at the Cleveland Clinic and the injections have to be at the Cleveland Clinic. So that does limit it to people are, who are able to do that, to okay. have the surgery here uh, because of geographic or insurance reasons. Sure, so it would have to be uh, people listening in the Cleveland area. Basically, yeah. Okay, and then finally, um, I'm wondering what are the next steps? So if these two trials look successful, what happens then? Um, I don't want to ask this question, but I do want to ask this question as far as a timeline, like when might we see something if the results are successful? I'm assuming you would have to go, I don't know if a phase two trial is necessary, but definitely a phase three trial would be necessary before we could get approval, you could get approval for it. Um, so what, you know, what are the next steps and what sort of timeline are you looking at? Well, it would be a long timeline, unfortunately. Uh, especially for the prevention group, we, we would do a phase two trial to get a better idea of the side effects, immune response, to allow us to calculate how many people we have to enter on a phase three trial. Uh, and in a randomized phase three trial, uh, these are generally fairly large studies. And really, we'd be waiting for cancer to develop or not develop. Now, whether we can find a shortcut around that, you know, is a, another question. So we've you know, been thinking of ways to try to um, shorten the timeline, but I think it, it's going to be a decade or decades before we get a final answer. In this other group of patients it, um, who are at risk to have recurrence, that also is a long timeline um, because we're, you know, treatments are getting better. Fewer people have the cancer come back, which is a good thing, but it makes it harder to find a difference. Um, and it always takes time, years. To for such trials. Uh, So to show that has a clinical effect um, that's important to patients, not just test results, then it's going to take 
years and I think decades. Okay, thank you. Yes, I, I guess I was assuming because as you said, the goal is after somebody gets the vaccine, you have to see whether cancer develops or not. And I would assume you'd want like at least five years of follow-up and ideally 10 to 20. Does yeah. yeah, okay. That's what I thought. Because sometimes cancers develop very slowly and you need to, you know, sometimes the results of five years are good, but then 25 years out, they may be very different. So we would start with high risk, patients at high risk to develop these uh, cancers. Um, this is, you know, where we would see an effect that's most obvious. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything else either of you would like to add? This has been very fascinating. I'd just like to note this is all work based on the work, as Dr. Johnson said, of Dr. Vince Tui, uh, who came up with this retired protein hypothesis. And it's, he did see this study get started. So he saw his work get into human beings, but uh, you know, we're all sad that he's not here today with us. Yes. I'm very sorry about that. But thank you both for your time. I appreciate it. This is very exciting and uh, we'll definitely keep tabs on your results as you publish them. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.